If you would please turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. This morning we begin a new sermon series on the book of Daniel, and I promise you it will not take as long as we spent in the book of Romans. Daniel chapter 1. Uh, Most of the history of the world can be told as a series of successive empires. In other words, who's the political powerhouse? Who's the big kid on the block? One empire rises as another one falls. In the year 626 BC, Babylon officially gained her independence from a declining Assyrian empire, and the father of Nebuchadnezzar, a king Nabopolassar, became king of the most powerful nation on earth, the Babylonian Empire. One of the only forces left in the world capable of standing up to the might of Babylon was Egypt down in the south. And so Egypt and the Babylonians fought a series of battles trying to determine who is it who will be king of the world. Now, we care greatly about the fight between Egypt and Babylon because Judah, the people of God, the promised land, the bearers of the covenant, lies directly between the two empires. You've got Babylon up in the north, Egypt up in the south, and the only reason anybody really cares about the Jews at all, the only reason we care about Judea, is because it lies right in the middle. Whoever's going to control the world has to control Judea. Well, Judah decides to try and throw in with the Egyptians, who ultimately lose. Babylon becomes the undisputed world empire, and Judah will be punished for siding with her enemies. So in the year 608 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar marches to Jerusalem, he captures the city, and he loots the temple. Notice how the Bible puts it, starting in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Okay, before we ever get to a teenager named Daniel, before we ever get to all those stories that we learned in Sunday school that make really good VBS skits, this book is letting us know that Daniel is not the main character of this story. Again, I know that his name is on the book. I know that he features pretty prominently in the stories. But Daniel is not the main character. This is a story about God. Notice verse 2. It says, The Lord delivered the king of Judah. Why are the articles from the temple of Yahweh now sitting in the temple of Marduk in Babylonia? Because God gave those things away. Here's the very first point of the book of Daniel. This sets the tone for the entire rest of the book. If you're writing anything down this morning, this is the one thing I want you to write down. This is number one on your bulletin outline, and that is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Okay, at this point in the story, we are at the very beginning of the exile. Okay, most of your Old Testament, in fact, the majority of your Bible is written about the exile. This story takes place right at the very front end of that. Daniel and his friends are the first small wave of what will be a deportation of almost all of God's people into Babylonian captivity. 
Okay, and as this is happening, as God's people are moving into the north, into Babylon, the big, the all-defining, the most important theological question is, why? Okay, did we lose, did Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of creation, did He lose because their God in Babylon was stronger than our God? Okay, that's what the Babylonian priests are saying. They say, you really want to know which God is in charge? It's got to be our God. Why? Because all the gold and all the stuff that was in your temple, where is it now? It's in Babylon in our temple. Obviously, the Babylonian God is stronger than the Jewish God. Now, did the Babylonians conquer the promised land because God doesn't really exist? That's part of what they're saying. Or, you know what, maybe that God of Israel does exist, but He doesn't really care about you that much. Or maybe He does care, but He's not powerful enough to stop it. Okay, or, did the Babylonians conquer us because their way of life is more modern, more advanced? It's time for us to get with the times. We should leave behind all of our old, outdated ways. We should gratefully become Babylonians and get with the modern world. I mean, they won, right? Don't you want to be on the winning team? The big question as we enter into the book of Daniel is, is the God of Israel still the Lord of all creation? Because there's a lot of voices saying He's not. So I think one of the main reasons for the book of Daniel is that he is teaching us that even though God's people felt rejected, even though they were defeated and isolated, even though they became to the rest of the world an irrelevant minority, this book from the very first verses is teaching us that God is still God. God is going to get His covenant plan for the world accomplished in spite of what the kings of this world and in spite of what the children of Israel themselves would do. The single biggest point that you can get out of the entire book of Daniel is the idea that our God is sovereign. You know, I was on social media the other day, uh, which quite honestly isn't very good at being social or providing media, uh, but nevertheless, I was on social media the other day, and I read a post by one of my politically liberal friends, um, of whom I've got several. It's always interesting to me to kind of watch my friends battle back and forth on Facebook, but one of my politically liberal friends was saying, aha, President Obama has completed his presidency and the apocalypse didn't happen. All you silly conservatives were worried for nothing. Fair point. Okay? Two posts later, another one of my politically liberal friends said, we all need to be in a panic now because the apocalypse is coming, because Trump is coming in office. I thought that was a little funny. All right, I already preached my political sermon for the year. I'm not trying to start that again. Um, if you didn't catch that sermon, I think I hopefully made it pretty clear that I don't think God hand-selected Trump. I don't think God hand-selected President Obama. Okay, but I think that our God is big enough to work through or around or over or in spite of whoever sits on the throne. Okay? Right? And I don't tell you that to be political. Okay? I tell you that because I think that as Christians, we should have the perspective to know who is really king. We should know that our God is working out His covenant plan and that what we do as the church is a whole lot more important than what any politician could ever do. Nebuchadnezzar conquers the world and the first lines of the book of Daniel is he's not in charge. Our hope 
doesn't change based on how the empires of this world change. Our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world. Our hope is in the God who is sovereign over all of creation. Now, how this changes my life on Monday is that I should be a whole lot less worried than what I typically am on Monday morning. Okay? I've told you this before, but I'm a worrier. How many of you are worriers? How many of you think you worry too much? Okay, now how many of you have a problem with honesty? Okay, that's the rest. Of, okay. Okay. Okay, I worry about stuff. I worry about my kids' health. I worry about politics. I worry about money. I worry about terrorism. I worry about people when I haven't seen them in a while. Okay, I worry about the fact that I worry too much. Okay, but if I truly have the kind of faith that is described in Daniel, then my worries would decrease because I know that God is going to be faithful to His people. God is going to be faithful to His plan. And it doesn't really matter what externals change around me. So number one is God is sovereign. Okay, notice the rest of this first chapter. Start in verse 3. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. In other words, he's going to make them Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Okay, probably because it's not kosher. Okay? Probably because it's violating all of the very intricate food laws that God gave when he gave the law back in Mount Sinai. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. All right, now we get to the heart of chapter 1. In this first stage of the exile, the only people who went to Babylon were the best and brightest of the young men. And there are multiple reasons for doing this. In the first place, a conquered people is much less likely to rebel if you have all of the sons of the aristocracy off in Babylonian captivity. In one sense, they work as hostages. In another sense, King Nebuchadnezzar knows he can make his empire stronger by taking the best and brightest people from all over his empire and bringing them into Babylon. Not only does it make the city itself stronger because you've got the best and brightest there, but also it makes him stronger because these kids will grow up to be Babylonians. And when they grow up, he can use them to help administrate his massive empire. This is very strategic. Okay, so I want you to imagine for just a minute that you're in this story. Okay, if, you, if it helps you to imagine by closing your eyes, close your eyes. I want you to imagine that you are a teenager. 
Okay, for some of us, thinking back that far is easier than others, right? I understand that. Okay, but close your eyes for a minute. Imagine that you are 16 or 17 years old. And your people have been conquered. Your parents are hundreds of miles away. And you don't expect to ever see them again. Okay? As a teenager, you are making your own decisions right now, and there's nobody to tell you to do something different than what you want to do. Okay? You are being groomed to become one of the most powerful people in the world because you are above average people. You're special. The rules don't really apply to you. And in your new home, they do everything that they can do to strip you of your old identity. They give you new names after new Babylonian gods in order to help give you a new Babylonian identity. Now, the temptation for you sitting in that kind of circumstance to become a Babylonian would be insurmountable. I think this is one of the two most amazing stories of faith in all of Scripture. Imagine a teenager having to sit there and tell the Babylonian officials over them, I'm not going to become Babylonian, I'm going to stay Jewish. I honestly think you could take a thousand of us and put us in the same situation and a thousand times we would choose to become Babylonians. Imagine the amount of faith that it required for these young men to stick with what they knew to be true. Why should you remain faithful to the God of Israel? After all, he just lost to the stronger gods of Babylon. It is time for you to grow up, put your old God behind you, with your childhood. You can open your eyes. Some of you kept your eyes closed a little longer than I intended. I'm used to seeing a lot of you with your eyes closed, but not because I told you to close them. That's a different different set of circumstances. How many of us as teenagers would have been able to stay faithful to God with no thought of ever, ever going home, with all of the cool kids doing something different, and immediately knowing that it would make your life infinitely more comfortable if you would just get on boat and become Babylonian. Okay, don't ever tell me that spiritual maturity and age automatically go together, because there are too many examples in Scripture of that just flat not being true. Okay, I think this is one of the two stories in Scripture that demonstrate the absolute most faith. Interestingly, both of them are teenagers. We should inspect incredible spiritual maturity out of our people, regardless of their age. All right, so here's my second point if you're keeping notes, and that is don't ever outgrow God. Okay, and if you could see my beautiful slide that I created, I have outgrow in air quotes, okay? Don't ever outgrow God. But after all, all the smart people believe something different. For these young Jewish boys in Babylon, they are constantly told by the priests and by the wise men that all the people who matter believe in the gods of Babylon. You know, maybe believing in the God of Israel worked for you when you were a kid. Maybe believing in the God of Israel worked back when the world was different. But the world has changed. It's advanced. The Babylonians are the most advanced people on earth. You don't need that God anymore. And maybe believing in that God helped you when you were younger and when you didn't know anything different. If that's all you heard growing up, then sure, you believed in the God of Israel, but now it's time to become an adult. Everybody believes something different now. You know, it used to be that when you believed in the God of Israel, you were surrounded by everyone who thought just like you, but now you're out in the bigger world and you know that's not true. Now you've become cosmopolitan. 
And you can see that if you stick to that God of Israel, it will put you in a very small minority. Surely, all of the smart, all of the advanced people of today can't be wrong, right? I think there was a temptation in their world, and I think that we all should know that there is a temptation in our world to give in to the pressures of our society to, quote, grow up and leave the God of your childhood behind. And honestly, I think in a lot of ways, our world today is becoming more and more like the world in which Daniel grew up, where the church is not the center of society, it's not the center of power. We're becoming more of a minority of people who hold beliefs opposite of what all of the smart, grown-up people believe. And we're going to have to get used to being a small minority who believes something in spite of what all the smart people around us are saying. I think many people would tell you that everybody is doing something different now. You know, I remember in high school, uh, whenever it was time to go buy clothes for school, I would always make my sisters come with me to buy school clothing. Even though they didn't want to go with their brother to buy school clothing, I made them go with me to buy my clothing for school uh, for two reasons, right? One, when you look this good, you have to be intentional in how you package it, right? I mean, there's, there's a reputation at stake. Okay, but more importantly, I didn't want to be different, right? I wanted my sisters to come with me because I knew they would help me pick out clothing that would help me to fit in, right? Because what matters more than anything when you're a teenager especially? Fitting in. Okay, and it really doesn't change when we become adults, right? Our peer groups might change. Fitting in might become redefined, but we still desperately want to fit in. We want to be accepted. We want people around us to like us and to think well of us and to look at us as one of them. We don't want to be on the outside looking in. We want to be part of the group. We want to be part of where everybody is. The temptation for us as followers of Jesus Christ is always going to be to outgrow our faith. It's going to be to become like the people around us, it's going to become to think more and more, man, I want to be part of the majority and not part of this minority. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to go into that with a faith that is willing to be on the outside looking in. We have to willingly be different. Fair enough? All right, number three and finally. God rewards faithfulness. Okay? God rewards faithfulness. Notice starting in verse 17. And this is after um, Daniel's plan works, right? He says, I'm going to eat vegetables and water. I'm going to leave all the fine foods aside, and we'll just see what happens. Okay? And what happens is they look better than the men eating off the king's table, right? Notice verse 17. It says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Okay, God rewards faithfulness. Right? And I'm not preaching the health and wealth gospel, right? which says that so long as you put your faith in Jesus, God's going to make you wealthy and keep you healthy and everything's going to be great in your life. Okay, I'm not preaching that. Okay, I'm not preaching that God will take away all of your struggles or all of your pain. 
if you've been a Christian for more than about 20 minutes, you know that God is not going to take away every struggle and every pain that you have. What I am preaching, what I think Daniel is preaching, is shalom. Which we typically translate that word as peace. But it means so much more than just peace. Shalom means that everything is okay. Everything is right. It is not just the absence of conflict. It is the presence of assurance. I believe that when we willingly embrace our outsider status in society, that God will reward us with peace and that He will take care of us. God rewards faithfulness. You know, I think the overall theological point of the book of Daniel is the exact same as the book of Revelation. I think both books are making one really clear point, and that is that we win. Eventually, the kingdoms of this world will all fall. Eventually, all of the people who think that they're in power won't be in power. Eventually, the covenant will be fulfilled, and the people of God will inherit a kingdom that will last forever. All right, at this point in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. We would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that's going on in your life right now. This is a time for us as a church to be here for you. And before we sing that song, I'd like to close with a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.